Our text this morning is John chapter 14, starting at verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you, which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we remember your servant Peter in the night that he stood on the waves with his eyes bouncing between the side of the waves and the side of his Savior. Father, we live at a time when the waves seem to be growing more and more turbulent. May we, by your great grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, fix our eyes on our Savior that we might walk through this storm. As we come to your word now, please give us that supernatural grace uh, to see your Son. And may that vision carry us through the week that lies ahead. We praise things in the name of your Son, our Savior, and amen. We are continuing on with Jesus' farewell discourse. Uh, in this section, Jesus continues to explain to the disciples that he is going to go away, that, that he's leaving them. He's going away, and he's going away in two fundamental ways. Okay, He is going to die, so they're going to see him leave, leave them in that way. He is about to be crucified on the cross. He's going to die. And then also, he's going to ascend to heaven. After his resurrection, he's going to ascend to heaven. So he's going away in two different ways. They're going to see his departure. Um, however, knowing that this, this, these departures are coming, he's comforting them. Remember, that's how he started this section. He's wanting to comfort them. Let not your heart be troubled. He's telling them this is not something that they need to worry about. So he's going away in two fundamental ways, but he's also going to return in two fundamental ways. He's going to die, but he's also going to rise again from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven, but he's going to return at the second coming to take them all to their heavenly inheritance. So he's going away in two ways, but he's also returning in two ways. And he promises them in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. You've heard me say, this is verse 28, you've heard me say, I'm going away and coming back to you. And he's telling them these things beforehand so that when these things happen, they will believe. Verse 29, and now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Remember, he said the same thing about 
at the end of chapter 13 with Judas's coming betrayal. He says, I'm telling you before this is going to happen so that when it happens, you will not be alarmed, but you will actually believe because this is all a part of the plan. So his departure is going to um, concern them, obviously the death on the cross, but also his ascending to heaven will feel like they've lost something, but he's telling them, I'm coming back, and, and you're hearing about all this beforehand so you can have confidence I know what's actually going on. He will go away, but he will return. This is why he could start his farewell discourse with the exhortation, let not your heart be troubled, back in chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going away, but there's good news. I'm coming back. So he's trying to console them, but, but he, he gives us now in this section, the second half of chapter 14, he gives us a second thing to comfort them with. Okay, he's, So first of all, he's comforting them with the fact that he's going to return, but there's a second piece of news that he has to comfort them with. We're in verses 16 and 17. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So although Jesus is going away, when he goes away, the spirit will come. And this is good news. The fact that the spirit is coming is good news. And it's worth Jesus going away so that the spirit can come. And we, we learn a few things about the Spirit in this section, and we're kind of just jumping all around in, in the second half of chapter 14 to put all this together. But, but first of all, in, in verse 16, let me read that just one more time. I'll pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. We learn that the Spirit is sent to us by the Father and the Son. In, in theological language, we'll say that the Son is begotten by the Father and that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So we have three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we know that they are one God, but they are three distinct persons because they do three distinct things. The Son is begotten, the Father begets, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son um, basically breathe the Spirit. The, the, they, the, I think in theological terminology we say he, he, they spirate. You know, they, they breathe the Spirit so that the Spirit can proceed from them. So they're distinct. We know that they have distinct actions, and yet they're one God. So we say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and it's a joint action of the Father and the Son together. Um, and, and the name for the Spirit, in, both in Greek and in Hebrew, pneuma in, in Greek and, and ruach in Hebrew, both refer to um, breath or, or wind. Okay, it's this, it's this wind or this breath that comes from the Father and the Son. So the Son is begotten, whereas the Spirit is breathed by the Father and the Son together. So you start to get the sense of what the Spirit is like as it describes the Spirit there. And then in verse 17, so he says, I'm sending the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here we learn that the spirit, even though the spirit is the spirit of truth, cannot be received by the world, cannot be seen by the world, cannot be known by the world. Um, and it's funny because we like to think of ourselves as naturally drawn to the truth, right? If it's true, then we can all see it and we'll all be drawn to it. But the truth is, in our sinful state, we are actually hostile to the truth. In our sinful state, the truth can be right there and we have a hard time acknowledging it, seeing it, uh, receiving it. 
Um, you, you probably have experienced this if you're a parent and you've ever caught a child red-handed in the middle of their sin. And the evidence of the sin is all around them, but they just try to pretend it away. They just, they won't acknowledge it. They won't see it. We had, I'm, I'm remembering, I will, um, the child will remain nameless, but we had a child who had a problem with illustrating uh, constellations with a Sharpie on the pillows. And pillows, sheets, everywhere, but pillows were the favorite. And, and it would be this, this, this elaborate drawing of a constellation with the name of the constellation, you know, Big Dipper, North Star, illustrated, all with a Sharpie, and frequently the child's name signing the work. <laughs> and you would come in and, and you'd be like, you'd look at it and you'd say, you know, did you do this? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I got there. And they, they could not acknowledge that it was actually just right there um, in front of them, even though the name was on it. Um, and, and that's how we are in our sin. The, the, the truth can be right in front of you, but because the truth convicts, because the cr- truth condemns, we have a hard time acknowledging it, receiving it, uh, confessing it, admitting it, uh, that it's true. When you're guilty, the truth becomes something that you can't receive, and the spirit of truth is not received by those that are living in disobedience. He says the spirit comes, but, but the world, it's, it's going to have this unique effect on those that are living by faith in Christ Jesus and in his righteousness. The spirit will have this unique effect on them, but, but on those that are outside of Christ, it, it's um, almost imperceptible. They, they can't receive it. They can't know it. However, Jesus says in this section, though, he says that the disciples have not only, they have known the Spirit, they've been familiar with the Spirit, but, but he says that, that that's about to change. Again, at verse 17, you know him, for he dwells with you. Okay, You know him, for he dwells with you. The, the disciples have, have encountered the Spirit by this point, but Jesus says that their relationship with the Spirit is about to change. You know him, for he dwells with you, and then he says, he will be in you. Okay, you've dwelt with him. You've been dealing with the spirit for some time, but your relationship to the spirit is about to change. The spirit is about to actually indwell you. It's going to live in your heart. All right. Um, Remember that the coming of the spirit has been hinted at before. If you go back in in chapter seven, um, I'm at verse 38. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. See, they, they, they would have the Spirit in them, and it would be in their heart, and flow. This, this rivers of living water would flow out of them. The Spirit is going to live in their heart. But he says, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so the spirit is going to be in their heart, and yet it's not yet happened. There's a, there's a fundamental transformation in the way the people of God relate to the Holy Spirit that's not going to happen until Jesus' resurrection, and he ascends into heaven, is fully glorified, and then the spirit comes, and they receive this different kind of relationship to the Holy Spirit. This is why he's saying this is going to be good news, that I go away, because you're going to be promoted, and the promotion will be the spirit living inside your heart. So this means that the Spirit was present all along. They had known the Spirit. They had witnessed the works of the Spirit. 
They themselves, if we remember in Luke chapter 10, it says that Jesus sends out his disciples and he gives them special power to go out and actually heal the sick, to cast out demons. And they're doing all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not like they haven't seen God's miraculous uh, work through the Holy Spirit. They've seen it and they've, been, they've experienced it as the ones who are actually casting out the demons and healing people by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they know of the power of the Holy Spirit, but there is something different, something unique that he is saying is still to come. Um, and if you think about it, when they were casting out those demons, it's likely that Judas was in that number going out uh, and, and doing that. But he, had, he was not tasting, he was not experiencing the indwelling of this, the Spirit. Jesus said that this is going to change. Uh, verse 17, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He will be inside of you. In the Holy, in, in the Old Testament, remember that when the um, remember when the tabernacle was completed, in Exodus forty, the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle has just been completed. According, you've got this long description of how you're supposed to build the tabernacle. They assemble the whole thing, and it's time to start worshiping there. And in Exodus chapter forty, verse thirty-four, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. They had this large tent, this tabernacle that was their temple. It was how they worshiped God. They assembled it, and then to inaugurate it and to begin um, worshiping there, a cloud descends upon it, and the glory fills the tabernacle. Right? God descends on the tabernacle and fills it, and that makes the, the tabernacle the place where you can worship God. Same thing happens with the temple, and the temple is the place where you can come and worship God. But Jesus says that, that well, so this is where you, you go to meet with God, but after the resurrection of Jesus, we see that the Spirit then descends and dwells on the, in the hearts of believers, so what happened there at the end of Exodus is what Jesus is saying is going to happen to you. You used to have this tabernacle that you would, um, you would all go to to worship God, and the Spirit descended on it. But he says now that Spirit is going to actually descend on you and dwell in your hearts. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 3, um, verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So all through the Old Testament, we constantly refer to the temple, the tabernacle, as where God dwells. And that changes with um, Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, where God now dwells in the hearts of believers. And it's really kind of cool if you think about the imagery and the transition that happens there. Because remember, we've been talking about the, all of the pilgrimages that have to happen throughout the Old Testament up to the time of Jesus, where everybody has to travel to get to Jerusalem to come and worship at the temple, because that's where the Spirit is. That's where God dwells. And you have to, everybody has to stream to come to worship Him. But as soon as you have the Spirit descend on the hearts of believers, then God dwells in your hearts. And now, instead of Every, all of us trying to go to Jerusalem, now the job is for all the Christians to leave Jerusalem and to take that spirit throughout the whole world, right? The spirit is in us, and we now have that job of taking that spirit throughout the whole world. The, the pilgrimage is reversed. We're not going to Jerusalem. We go to the rest of the world. So Jesus tells us here that it's good for him to go away because this will be a fundamental promotion for the people of God. We will now have the spirit indwelling us as his temple. He dwells in us, in verse 16 says, as a helper. Um, different people 
there are different translations of that word there. Some, some will translate as helper, some translate as advocate, some uh, translate it as comforter, that the Spirit is working in this way to be a, a helper or an advocate or a comforter in your, your heart. It says in, in verse 26 that he comes as a teacher. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. I imagine John probably has a, a um, particular, I don't know, um, uh, relationship to that verse because he's literally right now by the power of the Holy Spirit writing the things that God is reminding him about what Jesus said. He's, he's in the process of fulfilling that verse as he writes the Gospel of John. But, but that the, the Spirit teaches beyond that in each of our hearts, the Spirit is constantly opening our eyes to understand the Word of God. He comes as a, a helper, a teacher. And, and Paul describes the Holy Spirit as a promise from the Father. Elsewhere we'll see the, the, one of the names for the Holy Spirit is simply the promise, the guarantee of the inheritance to come. When the Holy Spirit comes, he comes to testify of a promise that you've received from God about what God is going to do with you. He's a down payment on the inheritance that God has reserved for you. He's described um, as a guarantee or a promise. And I think that's why in verse 16, John says, um, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. All right, the Spirit abides with you forever. Jesus came knowing that he was going to leave. And he tells them, I'm going to leave. But when I leave, you'll receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does not leave. When the Holy Spirit indwells your heart, he does not leave. He abides, he remains forever. Now that, that external work of the Spirit, the, um, the, the various offices that the Spirit can perform of healing and miracles and whatnot, I think that's something that actually can depart. But this indwelling that he's describing here is an indwelling that is permanent. It is, he says here, it is forever. Once you receive the Spirit, in this sense, he does not leave. The Son is going away for a while, but the Spirit never goes away. And so Jesus says that his going away is good news. And in verse 28, You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. All right, You would rejoice if you, if you heard this and understood what it meant. Now, this verse, I think, confuses people because it says that the Father is greater than the Son. I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Um, but we all say that the Father and the Son are equal. So how does, how does that work if he says the Father is greater than the Son? Well, the, the Son is eternally co-equal with the Father. But we're told that when the Son became incarnate, when the Son left he heaven and took on the body of a man, took on the body of a little baby, and was born as a man. So that's when he becomes incarnate. That at that moment, he, he humbled himself and set aside his glory. Um, Paul describes this in Philippians 2, starting at verse 5. I'm going to read a little bit of a long, longer section. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the Son leaves the glory that he has with the Father, humbles himself, and takes on the body of a man. And in that humiliation, he becomes less than the Father. But he's returning to the Father. He's returning to the Father. He's returning to that glory. So the return of the Son to heaven, to his throne, to his glory, to his Father, is good news for us. That's good news for us. Now, in this section, I think that we've been getting... um, kind of deep into teaching on how the three persons of the Trinity work, right? We've walked through a couple of really um, careful, sort of theologically precise ways of describing uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Son is begotten. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They are co-equal, but the Son empties himself of his glory to come down to earth and humiliates himself. Um, That's referred to in theology as kenosis, this doctrine that he he empties himself to come down. So there's all this like um, precise definitions about how the Trinity works and how the three persons of the Trinity work together. Um, There's quite a lot to unpack here, and you could go much deeper. But the thing that I want to focus on right now is the way that as Jesus explains how this all works, because he's, he's telling us a lot about the triune life, okay? And as Jesus is telling us about how this all works, he keeps telling them that this truth is really, really good news for them. He doesn't deliver this as like a boring theological lecture. He keeps telling them that like, now this bit about the Spirit or this bit about my returning to my glory that I have beforehand. When he's describing these things, he describes them as really good news for you. This is a really good thing that things are like this within the triune God. Um, We see this most of all, I think, in in verse uh, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He he recalls that that, uh, line that he opened verse 1 with of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You're dismayed. You're dismayed by all the things that are about to happen. But here's the thing. Do not be troubled because I'm telling you what God is like. And the fact that God is like this is really good news for you. Let not your heart be troubled. Everything is going to um, seem as if it's coming all undone. The son will be betrayed, will be abandoned, will be executed. But here's the thing. The son is co-eternal with the father. The Son is the great I Am. The Son has life in Himself, as He's been telling us again and again and again. The Son has life in Himself and therefore cannot be conquered by death. The Son will return to the Father to the glory that He had before all of creation. And the Father and the Son will send their Spirit to indwell our hearts and guide us in all truth, just as He dwelt in the tabernacle and led the Israelites out of Egypt. This is all good news, the way the Trinity works. God, and, and so here, here is the, my point here. God did not just have a plan for how to get us out of our state of being lost in our sin. He did not just have a plan. God himself was the plan, right? God himself is the plan. 
The triune life is our salvation. He didn't just have the plan, he was the plan. When Jesus said, I am the way, in John 14, 6, he was speaking quite literally, I am who I am, I am your salvation, I am the way. What I am like explains the gospel to you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the way that they live together in the singular divine essence provide the answers to our problems with sin and damnation. They provide those answers. And, and this is why this is so important. If you read um, ancient literature, if you read ancient literature very much, and many of you attending, uh, you know, getting your classical Christian education, you spend a lot of time uh, reading um, Greek and Roman mythology and even some of the uh, earlier Near Eastern stories, and you get a glimpse into the kinds of gods that they worshipped. And when you start to hear about the, the um, pantheon of gods in that ancient world, and what they believed the gods were like, one of the things that becomes really, really um, clear is how untrustworthy those gods were, right? How, how completely fickle and changing they always were. You could not depend on them for anything. They, the gods murder and rape. The gods come to earth and they murder and they rape according to their lusts, according to their angers, according to their temper problems. They promise to help you and they pick you as their, as their favorite. And then the next second, they betray you and trade you for something else. They constantly are betraying the people that are worshiping and serving them. They pick their favorites and then betray them. The gods are not to be trusted because Anytime you have a relationship with one of the gods, that relationship is based on what pleases that god for this moment, okay? And that, that feeling, that, that uh, relationship you have can change in just a moment because the gods are fickle, all right? But the thing that is so striking about our god is how fixed and immovable and permanent and eternal he is. He is the one who is from before all creation, who is not moved by anything. He is fixed and he is permanent and he is, he is he's always settled. God's decisions are not the result of fickle and ever-shifting feelings. They are the revelation of what he is like, eternal and unchanging. His decisions, his actions reveal this steadfastness of his character. He is the triune God, and this and and I would say this is why we um, tend to get finicky about um, our doctrine of God. Like when people are saying, "Ooh, that's you got to be careful about that. That's heresy." You know, when you when you describe the Trinity in that way, that's that's getting uh, touch. That's getting into um, you know, you're getting kind of off the path when you say that. And sometimes it can feel like uh, people who are drawn to Christian theology are being overly finicky, and sometimes they can be, but. It is worth guarding these truths very carefully. Like when we talk about how the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together, it's important that you guard those things carefully because we're revealing what God is like. And, and in revealing what God is like, we're revealing how our salvation works and how our relationship to him works. There's a reason why, for instance, we are... Um, we have a, a bit of an open door to Roman Catholicism, but not to Mormonism, Right? Catholics agree with our understanding of who God is and the description of the, the triune life. They are with us on that, and they have an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. The Mormon conception of the Trinity is completely 
um, man-made. They're not describing, when they describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're not describing the God of the Bible. It's a man-made um, pantheon of gods. That's why we draw this long or this hard distinction between the two. And sometimes it can feel rough because you feel like, but Mormons can be nice. They can be sweet. But you, it's really important to be precise about this because if you give way on your doctrine of the Trinity, everything starts to um, fall apart after that. We know that in this life, this triune life, um, we, we, um, we like to think that, or excuse me, we know in, in our lives, not the triune life, we know that in our lives, uh, we like to think that there are certain actions that are supposed to always be consistent with who someone is. Okay? In, in, in this life, we, we think of um, people in certain offices, and we like to think of them always have actions that are consistent with that office. So, for instance, we like to think that a mother is always has perfect and unconditional love for her children, right? If you if you say you know the a mother's love, right? That's the sort of thing that you could have on a poster with a basket of kittens, and it just sounds so tender and warm and affectionate. A mother's love, because a mother is always supposed to have this unconditional love for her children. We know that in the real life, there are plenty of mothers who are terrible to their children. There are, there are mothers who are inconsistent with the office that God has, has put them in. There are mothers who despise their children, who mistreat their children. There are mothers who murder their children. And so even though we, we, we have this idea of what motherhood should look like, we know that the office doesn't always line up with the person who's in it. Or, or we like to think that, that veterans, you know, that military veterans will always serve with a pure, noble, and unimpeachable uh, loyalty for their nation, ready in one second to make the great sacrifice for our safety, right? We, we have a real sort of like our veterans, and, and we always want to say thank you for your service. Um, but this is a notion that you can only have uh, by living at a great distance from the enlisted Marines. And I say that as one, so I can do that. But I, it always makes me laugh when somebody says, thank you for your service, and I think about what I was doing most of that time. Wasn't that honorable? <laughs> wasn't, wasn't that that noble? Um, but we like to think of, we, we have this idea that kind of comforts us that, that there's a certain kind of office that, that people will not, if they're in that office, their actions will always represent that office. We have all of these ideals that we want people to live up to. Um, but here's the thing. People always fail you. They, they always fail you. People, people who have these offices of husband, wife, father, mother, boss, employee. And we could go on and on and on of all of these categories, and people always fail you. It's not until you come to God that you meet someone who literally is what his office says, who, who literally is what he has promised to do. Okay? Because you can have what you say you're going to do, but then when it comes time to do it, whether you feel like doing it or not can make it really hard to actually fulfill what you've said you would do. God is not the one who he said he'll do one thing, and then when he gets there, he may or may not feel that way. He is what he has said he would do. His triune life, the way he is put together, the triune life is what he has promised to do. Okay? It is not until you come to God that you meet someone who literally is what he has promised to do. As Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Okay? He cannot deny himself. He is what he has promised to do. It's not, it's not like he has to come to a moment and make a decision. He is what he has promised to do. He cannot be um, 
or put it another way, he cannot not be the God that he is. So God is not just committed to the gospel as a good idea. It is a revelation of what God is like. And that's why when Jesus is sitting here saying, listen, you're, you're going to see the Trinity unfold in front of you. You will see me, who has come from the Father, return to the Father. You will see the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son to you and indwell your hearts. You're going to see the Trinity unfold before you. And that's why he says, let not your heart be troubled. Take peace, have peace, take comfort, because this is all good news for you. This is all the unfolding of the gospel for you. It's interesting if you think about um, the way we begin our service, where we say peace to you, but it's not just peace to you. It's peace from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's a triune peace that you receive. It's a triune baptism that you receive, because this is the promise of the gospel. So in verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The world gives, and the world takes it right back. The world gives, the world changes its mind. The world gives and then turns out didn't put any money in the account that they wrote the check for. The world betrays you all the time. But Jesus says, I'm not giving the way the world gives because this is just who I am. I can't not be this. So let not your heart be troubled. He started with this exhortation in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. And he returns to it here. Do not be troubled. The peace of God is given to you, and it is not given as the world gives it, temporary, fleeting, fickle, duplicitous, given with with ulterior and self-serving motivations. No, God gives his peace as a revelation of who who he is and who he cannot help but be. You have his perfect son revealed to you as the risen and conquering savior sitting at the right hand of his eternal father. And he's not just revealed to you as a distant king. He is revealed indwelling your heart, present in your heart. And that spirit that once hovered over the tabernacle in a cloud of smoke and fire is now in your heart as a permanent testimony of God's claim on you. So if this is true, if you have that peace, how could your heart be troubled? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit. We see that this is something that comes from you that is initiated by you, that is merited only by the perfect righteousness of your Son. And yet we still ask that you would continue to pour your Spirit out on us and on our town, that you might reveal your great glory by causing your gospel to be lived out in the lives of your saints in Moscow. Father, reveal your glory in our town by drawing this town to yourself. And we pray now as your Son taught us to pray, saying, This meal that Jesus gave us teaches us the pattern of dominion. When God created the world, each thing that he made, he pronounced good before he went to work on it again and made it better. And so this is what dominion is. It is receiving God's good gifts, giving thanks for them, and then making them better. In a fallen and sinful world, there's more pain and suffering, and now death is involved as well, but the pattern really is the same. And Jesus demonstrates that pattern here in this meal that he gave us. He took bread that represented his body, he gave thanks, and he broke it and shared it with the disciples. And then he did the same thing, taking wine, representing his blood, giving thanks for it, and then distributing it. Notice the pattern. He takes the gift God has given, in this case, his body and blood, and then he gives thanks for it, and then breaks it apart and distributes it. 
And this is the pattern of good to very good. Good bread becomes very good fellowship. Good wine becomes very good forgiveness and peace. So what we are doing here, God is teaching us to do everywhere. Receive the gift, give thanks for it, and then look for some way to make it better. Share it, bless someone, turn a profit on it. But the key thing in that transition from good to very good is gratitude. It's the giving thanks part. Thankfulness is what allows you to see clearly what is there, what has been given. And that is what will allow you to make it fruitful because you've seen it clearly. So what is it in your life that you don't see what God has given it for? A friendship, your marriage, your parents, your kids, your singleness, your barrenness, your roommate, a health challenge, this mad, mad world? Well, first, give thanks. Then maybe give thanks again. Keep giving thanks until you see what it is, until you see that God has given it to you, until you see how to make it fruitful, how to share it. And don't miss the fact that this is what God is doing to you. He has taken hold of you. He has rejoiced over you in his son. And now he's breaking you apart. Now he's remaking you in order to make you very good, in order to make you fruitful. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks. Our God and Father, Thank you that you have taken hold of us in your son and you have rejoiced over us. Thank you for the body of Jesus that was broken for us, the blood that was spilled for us so that we might become fruitful in him. And so we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. You've heard this morning the good news that God, all that he does is always who he is. There's no distance at all between who he is and what he does. One of the other great Christian doctrines that's interwoven into everything that Dr. Merkel was preaching about is the doctrine of the immutability of God, the, cha the changelessness of God. God never changes. He is always who he is all the time. We are the ones that change. Think of it like the sun. You don't always see the sun, the sun is always there. The sun never moves. We are the ones moving. And even as he reveals himself to us, he's not changing. He's always been there. He's already there ahead of us, waiting for us. He has all that we need, all the time. And that really is good news. Let not your hearts be troubled about anything. And go with his blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all and remain in your hearts always. And amen.